Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 31 called Meg. So Meg is an incredible woman and she has written a book called The Waiting Line, What to Do and Not to Do When Someone You Love is Struggling with Infertility. And I came across this book earlier this year and I reached out to her, asked her to be on the podcast and She's going through secondary infertility right now, so she said she would love to come on and tell her story and talk about her book. So we'll definitely talk about the book more in the interview, but I just want to give you guys a little heads up that it's a great guide to give somebody like your parents or your friends or even your partner because it has really good advice about what to say, what not to say, and Meg is funny as fuck and the book has a lot of humor in it as well. So as you know, if you've listened to this podcast, We like to laugh through the pain sometimes. So Meg and I had a great conversation. I love talking to her and I want to thank her so much for being a part of this podcast. So without further ado, this is Meg's infertility story. So hi, Meg. How are you today? Hi, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. So I want to tell everybody how I heard about you. So you've written this great book, which we will talk about a little bit later into this interview. But the book is called The Waiting Line. And the subtitle is What to Do and Not to Do When Someone You Love is Struggling with Infertility. And when I saw that and heard about it, I was like, yes, we need this. The world (laughs) needs this. This is such a breakthrough. So I'm so happy that this book is out there. And like I said, we'll talk about it more. But first, let's start with you obviously wrote this book because you did have infertility issues and, you know, are still kind of going through stuff or not going through stuff anymore. Yes. No, my, yes. My secondary infertility journey is going strong. Going strong. Okay. (laughs) You got married in 2015. And how long before you started trying to have kids? Okay. So I got married when I was 37 years old. So I was a little bit further down the road. So I was just happily going through my twenties and thirties. Not that happy, you know, the dating scene is not a party, but you know, traveling along, both my grandmothers had had children in their forties and I thought I'm good. You know, like the, the years were creeping up and I was getting nervous, but I thought, you know what, I'm good. So when I got eventually got married, met my husband. He's five years older than me. I was 37. So to be totally honest, we started trying before we were married. Scandalous. Woo, scandal. (laughs) And uh, it actually worked. I was one of those obnoxious cliche people that got pregnant the first time I tried. You sneezed and got pregnant. Yeah, so easy. So easy. But I really did. And that was the weird thing. But And as we talk, you'll see like advocacy for yourself is a huge part of my story because Mm -hmm. while I saw those two pink lines and was like, holy shit, that's weird and crazy and I'm not married and, uh, you know, I was so naive and um, I called my OB's office and told them what was going on and they were just so like, okay, we'll see in nine weeks, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'm 37. Are you sure I shouldn't come in sooner? Oh, no, no. And they were almost flipping about it. Like we get these calls every day. We'll see in nine weeks, Mm -hmm. nine weeks, lady. And I wish I had advocated for myself. I knew nothing at the time. I just hung up the phone and was like, okay, Mm -hmm. cool. 
I wish I had said, can I at least get an HCG test? Can we do some blood work to make sure this thing is real? Mm -hmm. Because it ended up with me around nine weeks in the ER having a miscarriage. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I spent like the next month thinking I was pregnant and it was a blighted ovum situation. And Mm -hmm. I could have known if I you know, had maybe taken some different steps, but how would I have possibly known to do that? So tell us, what is a blighted ovum? Because I think that at one point they thought that one of my miscarriages was that too, but it was never confirmed. And now I honestly can't remember what that means. So I know, I know. And I'm not, there are in so many different situations. So a blighted ovum is when there's no fetal pole ever. So there was not a, I think there was a, um, a yolk sac was visible, but there was no fetal pole and there was certainly no heartbeat or anything like that happening. So it's like your body thinks it's pregnant. It's doing what it thinks it's supposed to do, but there's no actual pregnancy happening in there. Same as a chemical pregnancy or is that different? That's different. So I've had two chemical pregnancies <clears throat> Those are the gamut of all. The- I know, I know. It's been a total blast, and I'm being totally sarcastic. Right, I right, hope right. that's coming through. But no, yeah. um, a chemical pregnancy is where your body starts to put things in motion, and then it fizzles out. So my chemical pregnancy, I saw the two lines. It was super, super faint. When I had a blood test, it, my beta HCG was like a four. And it just sort of resolved itself. So I believe a chemical is when your body is just really starting to think about it and then it just stops. So there's no yolk sac or there's no, there's nothing, no DNC or anything like that is needed at that point. Your body just resolves itself. Okay. Can we back up a little bit to, you said that both of your grandmas had kids in their forties. So that must've been pretty rare back in that day, right? It really was. Yes. And Yeah, my and they've both passed, so I haven't been able to ask them about it. But I wonder how that was because that was like people are having, you know, a couple er, couple generations ago. It was like people who were nineteen and twenty. You know, like that's right. Definitely a different thing. What about your mom? Was she how old was she when she had you? She was twenty nine. Okay, and and I have an older sister, so she was in the normal range, and she didn't have trouble either. So I thought, I thought I'm good. And my body had been a trooper. I hadn't had any medical issues. I had complete faith in my body. Mm-hmm. And so when all these things started happening, I was like, oh, this is, you know, you just don't think you just, mm-hmm. I just thought this is going to happen. I'm going to make this happen. Right. Okay. So what happened after that first miscarriage? So after the first miscarriage, everybody kind of treated me like, you know, that's normal. Try again. So we did. Um, I got married. I remember taking a pregnancy test on my honeymoon. It was negative. So the journey just kind of evolved from Uh there. So I went to an RE. I remember crying in my gynecologist's office when she was referring me to the RE. Mm. I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. Went to the RE, super nice guy, went down a Clomid cycle, got pregnant again. This time I was under the care of an RE. So we were able to have the blood test. Everything looked great. Then when it came time for the first ultrasound, same thing again, blighted ovum situation that re- resulted in a um, DNC on Christmas Eve Eve. Oh, God. 
Yeah. So after that point, I mean, I was a lunatic in terms of I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to figure this out. You know, they gave me the miscarriage panel, the blood work, you know, like the next level blood work that they do after you've had a couple miscarriages. Uh I just was on a mission. Like, sorry about my real job, but I literally sat at my desk at work and researched and watched YouTube videos of people going through the same situation. Like I just was like, I'm making this happen. I'm making this happen. And every supplement I could take every, I went to acupuncture, you know, I did the whole thing. I'm like listening to my own story because I was the same way. Yeah. I listen. Yeah. It's like, you can't help it. And there's so much out there and you just decide like, well, I'm going to just make this happen for myself. I have to, like, this is the only thing I can do. Like, you know, like it's a control freak. You just feel like I can control this. You really can't. But I said about trying to control it as much as I could. It's like, oh, I need to eat a banana on the third day of its ripeness and like at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. I'm like, right. yes, I'm going to make that happen. Right. So like, I eat the shit out of that banana. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Can I just say first, you live in Michigan, right? I do. You, I love your, you sound like, I'm from Chicago and you sound, it's like the Midwest. You sound like everybody that I grew up with and went to high school with. So I'm like, I feel like we're like immediate friends. Like, yeah. like all my friends back home. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't feel like I have an accent, but no, I, I sort of do. And I never thought that I did either. But then when I moved to New York, people are like, oh, you're from the Midwest? <laughs> yeah. So to cut to the chase, I my acupuncturist said, get a second opinion. Here's this lady. I love her. Go to her. Different RE's office. So I went. She was the bomb. And she was like, you're perfect. You're great. This is going to, we're going to do this. And we set about Heading down a uh, the IUI path mm-hmm. with injectables, and so I really gave it my all. And this was like, let's see, my DNC was in December. Don't ask me to think of years. I cannot no, keep track okay. of years at this point. But um, this was the next cycle after that had start after that after my DNC. I got my period, and then here we were going with this new RE, full blown ahead, and. So there I am taking the injections and like working my ass off to make this happen. And we go in for one of our scans and the blood work came back with like a fluke. So my HCG was like a four still when I started because of the DNC situation. And the doctor was like, it's fine. I think we can start thinking that the number would just sort of fizzle away. Mm-hmm. And then like a couple of weeks later, it jumped to an eight randomly. I think it was an eight. And so they basically called the cycle off and they were like, I was far enough along where they said, just take the trigger shot at home, have sex at home. I think everybody was sort of like, we'll see you next time. Like this is, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. So we randomly got pregnant on that cycle. The whole thing was so stupid. Like my progesterone, you know, they do a progesterone test, like you know, whatever, six days after the track. It was, it was like a four. It was just so dumb. I was like, oh, this cycle is the worst. Get me out. You know, I just want to start out of this cycle. Yeah. And then it just so stupidly worked. And by this point, it's wonderful, but I was so jaded. I had had two, you know, blighted ovum situations. I just didn't believe it. So it wasn't this magical, like embracing my husband and you know, birds tripping in the background moment. It was literally like, here we go again. Uh-huh. And I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. And so I hate to say this, but I 
called the situation an alleged baby for until I saw a heartbeat. Like I was just like, I didn't believe it. Well, it's a self-protective thing too, right? Like you had gone through it twice before with these losses and, you know, to, to think that you're going to totally let your guard down is, is kind of tricky. Yeah, it was tricky. And I mentally, I just don't think I was ready for, I couldn't do it again. So I just was sort of like, exactly had my guard up. And by this point, you know, my doctor had said, you need to take blood thinner shots. Oh, that's another thing. I found out I had thyroid issues. I found out I had MTHFR, which my mom calls it the motherfucker gene. I was just going to say, when I looked at the acronym, I'm like, oh, the motherfucker gene? <laughs> yeah. So, and we can mom get into calls that, it that later. Yeah, my mom calls it that. <laughs> what is, what does it mean? It's a gene mutation that can affect blood clotting Mm -hmm. um, and it can affect a whole bunch of other things. But because it could affect blood clotting, my RE said, you know, the next time you get pregnant, you're going to have to take blood thinner shots like every day for the entire pregnancy. And I was like, okay, that's not fun, but okay. So when I got the positive pregnancy test, I was like, oh God, here we go with these blood thinner shots. So I was bruised. I mean, I was like a mess and it was all in the name of like, I hope that something is actually in there because, you know, I'm, this is horrible. And luckily it was, and that situation all worked out miraculously. And I thought I had it all figured out at that point. You know, I had myself in I'm yeah. sorry, wait, before you talk about having your son, yes. how often were you doing, was it blood thinner shots on the regs for like your entire pregnancy? Yeah, every okay. single day, twice a day and yeah. Okay. Twice then, a day. One medication is twice a day and one is once a day and I switched back and forth, but yeah, every single day. Okay. And then you had also mentioned that you had Hashimoto's thyroiditis, yes. right? So was that, you found that out while you were pregnant with your first with your son or was it before that or and what is that exactly so I found out I had Hashimoto's during my frenzied I'm gonna fix this period before I had my son so um, and I am not a medical expert but they say to get pregnant you need your TSH your thyroid stimulating hormone to be Uh between 0.5 and 2 and mine was slightly elevated and they tested it. And Hashimoto's just means you have antibodies present. Okay. So those are like your body is basically attacking its thyroid. It's basically what that is. Uh-huh. So I worked really hard trying to figure that out. There's tons of information on the internet and it is very serious. Like if your thyroid jumps too high, it can be a real cause for miscarriage. Mm-hmm. So I was like crazy about figuring that out. I did, because I had antibodies, like inflammation in my body, I got the, um, it's called an IgG food sensitivity test mm-hmm. because I wanted to just reduce inflammation as much as possible in my body, knowing that the situation was already happening with the thyroid. So I eliminated like a million foods from my diet as a result of that. I was just doing absolutely everything I could uh-huh. and, and plus taking thyroid medication. So okay. I quickly got the thyroid under control, but I also monitored it constantly. I was kind of psycho about it. Every two yeah. weeks, I would get a blood test during my pregnancy because I just was like, my Ari my had thought maybe, maybe my thyroid had been in part of the issue with the early miscarriages. So I just was like, okay, I'm not going to let that happen again. Obviously, I'm going to stay on top of this. Yes. So how is your husband doing throughout all of this? Did he have the same kind of laser focus? No. 
<laughs> Did it, no. was it affecting your relationship at all? And the reason I ask is just because everybody that listens to this knows by now that, you know, this can really be hard on relationships. My husband and I had a hard time and we're great now, but there were some really low points when, you know, I was laser focused and he wasn't necessarily on the same page the whole time. And it's just, it can be so tough. So how are you guys? I mean, I kind of handle things on my own, which isn't the greatest. I kind of go inward with things. So I don't think he really knew everything that was going on Mm -hmm. with me on a daily basis in terms of like how kind of crazy I was about this. Mm -hmm. So he's like the most laid back, supportive dude in the world. And he did his best to just be that way all the time. I held a lot of it in. Okay. So, I mean, he was the one who gave me the shots and he put up with me. I had a very strict protocol. Like now I'm going to lay on the couch for the shots. I'm going to lay on the couch. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to put a pillow over my head and you need to count to three. And then on three, you give me, like, I was just like, I had all these things and he put up with me. I mean, it was a rough time. I don't, I, it, it was a rough time. I mean, it's yeah. not a party. It's like you're having sex on demand. You're having, you know, it's like yeah. fights about you need to rally. We need to do this again tonight. And I mean, it's yeah. just like, it's not how they make it out to be in the movies, is it? <laughs> it sure isn't. So then how was the rest of your pregnancy aside from getting, being bruised from all your shots and things? It was great. It was fine. The doctors kind of treated me like an old lady, but whatever. And again, like you need to, <laughs> I just learned along the journey, like you just have to advocate for yourself. And after I graduated from my RE's office, I was on these blood thinner shots and she warned me that this was kind of controversial, that not everybody agrees with having me on blood thinner shots for the entirety of my pregnancy. And so many doctors, I had to just sort of be like, okay, thanks for your opinion. I'm not stopping these shots. And Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and people acting like, oh, you know, that I was old and I was this and that because I was 38 at the time. And I just you just have to ignore, you know, I just was like, okay, you know, like, what are you going to do? I mean, this is where I'm at in life and I'm going to make the most, you know, I just wasn't going to let people act like I was like, I don't know, like yeah. this old decrepit woman. I'm like, at any point, did they call it a geriatric pregnancy? Because they called mine that, my second one. Of course. Yeah. They did. Yeah. The worst yeah. term. We need to get a, do away with that term. I know. Seriously. I know. And I feel, I'm, I feel like I'm a veteran in the trying to conceive community at this point. I mean, I'm 41 years old and I had my baby at 38 and I see younger women and I just, you know, a lot of women wanted to have a baby by the time they're 30. And I totally get that. It's just hard to be now 41. And, you know, it's just such a different perspective to be on the other side of this weird age mm-hmm. thing that we give ourselves. Well, how old are your mommy friends are like younger than you or are there people that are around the same age or like, how is it? No, working? they're around the same age. Okay. Yeah, all my friends are my age and they have like 12 year olds and 15 year olds. And I'm just like, you know, right. Whatever. Yeah. Saying, yeah. <laughs> like, I think the preschool fun. thing now. <laughs> right. They're but like, oh, we're at high school graduation. Exactly. But yeah, that's how my friends from Chicago, a lot of my friends started having kids um, younger than I did. And, you know, some of them have kids literally in college now and it's wild. It's awesome. It is wild. Yeah. They're giving me a heads up on what's to come and it doesn't look fun. Like I know <laughs> high schoolers um, and stuff, but yeah. 
Okay. So tell me what happened on October 30th, 2016. Well, I birthed my son. Okay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. I had him standing up. What? I did. Were you at home? No, no, okay. I was at the hospital. I was like, I want to do this whole like unmedicated thing. And it all worked out. And I was so lucky. So like, as I'm on my secondary infertility journey, like, you know, there's a lot of going back and forth with like, I guess maybe that was my one shot. And it was an amazing shot. Like I did everything I wanted to. And I'm so grateful for that experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it doesn't take away the wanting to grow your family and want to have more. And really like my infertility story really revs up in the second act. Like trying to have my son was like, if I had a crash course in infertility, trying to have my son, like I have been like in the midst of my master's class ever since, because (laughs) this is when shit gets real. Like, okay. So tell me about act two. What's what happened then? Like, when did you guys start to try again and, and what went wrong? So I thought I had it all figured out. I had my son and I'm like, sweet, I just have to take these shots and my body just needs a little boost and I'm going to be awesome. Let's have baby number two. I'm 30, whatever, nine at the time. Let's hurry up. And so we went on the same path and I was so dumb and just thought like, this is going to work. I was like, oh, I'm worried about twins, which is so stupid, like in retrospect. But I, I really thought like my body my body's got this. We're going to just do this again. So I did a time cycle again, obviously didn't work. I did three IUIs. They didn't work. Mm-hmm. I did. Wait, can um, I ask you quickly, what do you think of the whole IUI process? I think it's fine. I mean, I think it's a logical next step mm-hmm. when you're trying to get pregnant. I know a lot of people are kind of like they don't work. They're a waste of time. But I feel like if you are weeding out the best sperm and shooting it up there at the best time, like it really can't hurt to try. Mm-hmm. I didn't okay. mind. I thought it was going to work every time. I thought, you know, this is all I need. Of course, you've heard of people who it worked for. One of my friends got Yeah, one of my best it. friends too. Right. So I know it works. And, you know, I, I think it's a logical next mm-hmm. step on your journey. So I took that step and then there we were, three IUIs later, and I was like, okay, I guess here we go with IVF. And I, I didn't do a ton of research on it uh, like I had done previously with every single step I took. I just was like, here I go. And it didn't work. I mean, my track record for IVF is the most eggs I've gotten is five. Mm-hmm. And I know you got like 37 or something crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I got 29, but I mean, I don't, I didn't know what that meant. It sounded good, but I only ended up with five, you know, embryos that got tested and then one healthy embryo. So that just goes to show the numbers are so different for everybody. They are. And I like my embryos never, all of my embryos. So I did IVF three times. Okay. And every single time I had a transfer, it was on day three. And I know that's controversial as well. My doctor's just sort of in that camp with my age and thinking that sometimes embryos survive better in your body than they would outside of your body. I know a lot of people are like, if they don't survive until day five, they're not going to survive in your body anyway. So it's kind of a waste of time and money, but we don't have to get into all that, but I, I, that's what we did. Yeah. So IVF does whatever's right for them, right? I mean, right. 
and it's so hard to know and every office is different and everybody's different. So IVF one, we got four embryos that were fertilized. I put one in, nothing happened. And the other three never made it to freeze. I don't have any eggs frozen. Every single time I did a full complete egg retrieval, um, embryo transfer and never had anything to freeze. So I never did any testing or anything like that. Okay. So IVF two resulted in a chemical pregnancy, which I saw two very faint lines. And then my beta HCG was like a four Mm -hmm. and the doctor like barely mentioned it. I was like, I think something was trying to happen on our follow-up call. And she was like, yeah, it was, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then, um, IVF three, same thing. I actually put three embryos back in. I think we got four that time, three fertilized, mm-hmm. and we put them all in. We named them Lloyd, <laughs> all of them Lloyd. One with Lloyd with one L, the next one was Lloyd with two L's, and the next one was Lloyd with three L's. Stop. And we, <laughs> we put all the Lloyds back in. And Wait, one, why Lloyd? I don't know. I don't know. I love it. <laughs> and one Lloyd tried to hang on. I think my beta was like a nine and a couple more weeks monkeying around with that situation, but I just knew it wasn't it wasn't happening. Okay. And I will say after my first IVF, I was so <sighs> disenchanted and depressed and I thought I just thought it was gonna work. I thought that's what you do and it works. And I was still super asked optimistic at that point. And I just thought, you know, you do IVF and it, that's what happens. And right. it just did when it didn't happen, I was so angry and I felt dropped by my RE's office, which I know a lot of women feel that way because once it's negative, like they feel like your friends and you're like in this super intense part of your life with these nurses and the doctor and you just feel like you're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And then when the result is negative, they just call and leave a voicemail and then they never call you back, at Mm -hmm. least at my clinic. Like you got ghosted. Yeah. And it feels, you know, you're just, I'm just so mad at everybody at that point. So I was mad at them. Like, could they at least like call and check in and see how I'm doing? Like, I was just furious. Totally. And And you know what? I'm so glad that you said that because it's true. A lot of people do, that happens to them. And I have, I don't think anybody has really talked about that yet on the podcast. So thank you for bringing that up. It's, it's such a good point. Yeah. And it's such a real feeling because you are hugging these people like before you're hugging the doctor as she implants embryos. And I mean, you're like crying to the nurses and they're pulling strings for you and doing all these things. And you think like, we're friends. We're like legit friends, I think. And then they legally, I think, can't follow up. Like it's just not. Yeah. What you can do. Maybe there's some amazing nurses like shooting the shit with people after they're Right, some rogue nurse like on the sly, like DMing you and being like, it's me. I'm still (laughs) in your life. (laughs) Right. I'm thinking of you. Right, right, right. Right. Maybe. It's interesting. Um, Yeah, there must be some sort of legal, legalese or something there that, you know, they have to draw the line. I know. And it's, I mean, if you think about it, like you had a negative pregnancy test. So like your treatment is over, like the relationship is over. Mm -hmm. They're like, thank you next. I know. And that's how it felt. And I was furious, but so I took some time off. I went to an, I got a second and third opinion. Like 
you know, I was really reeling with like, what do I do now? And so I did like a letrozole cycle between IVF1 and IVF2 and just to kind of like lick my wounds and be like, well, I'm going to try something, but like I can't, you know, jump back into IVF again. And I didn't know if I was going to, I just, it's, you know, I don't want, I know I'm sarcastic and I know we're kind of breezing through my journey, but. No, but obviously you're, you're yeah. similar to me in that we deal with this stuff with a bit of humor. Like you kind of have to at a certain point and I don't think you're being callous or like in, you know, insensitive to your own story. It's just, it is what it is. And people talk about their stuff in different ways. Right. Right. So, but then I did lick my wounds and tried again and then tried again. And now here I am, like, I don't know where I'm at. Like, okay, we're kind of waiting for, um, the insurance money has kind of dwindled. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what the next steps are. I mean, I'm 41 years old as well. So it's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm not necessarily giving up or throwing in the towel. I'm not sure what's going to come next. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a book instead. Right. So tell me, okay, so your your book is incredible. We'll link to it and put it on my social and all that stuff so people can check it out. But tell me, like I said, it's called The Waiting Line, what to do and not to do when someone you love is struggling with infertility. So tell me how how it all came about. Was it something that your best friend had said to you? Yeah. So I have an amazing friend, Maria. And Hi, she- Maria. Hi, Maria. She tried to be as supportive as possible, but she has three children. She had no problems getting pregnant and she didn't know what to do or say. And everybody that kind of like my mom, my sister, like my in-laws, nobody knows what to do or say. And when you've been on this journey for as long as I have, you build up a lot of things. Like I had all these things in my bank, like that wasn't a great thing to say, or that was super helpful. And so by the end, you know, when IVF number three failed, Maria was like, I don't know what to do. She's like, you should write a book Mm -hmm. so I can read it. So I know what to do, which is so her personality. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I should do that. So (laughs) I just sat down and like hammered it all out. I'm a writer. So I worked in advertising for 15 years and I'm a freelance writer now. So me sitting down and just writing all this was not a huge departure, but I just sat down and started writing and it turns out I had a ton to say about it and I'm I know I'm not alone these things I've heard everybody hears inappropriate right. things that people say like they seem to just be universal in the uh-huh. infertility community and you know everybody kicks it off with have you thought about adoption you know that's the first one everybody seems to say when you let them know you know you're struggling with infertility right so from there you know i kind of shelved the book there for a while cuz i was real fired up in the beginning but then I, you know your mood changes and you know your inspiration changes yeah you just kind of ebb and flow and then a friend of mine was going through infertility she's in the uk and that fired me up I was kind of acting as like a coach for her. We were messaging back and forth and I was cheering her on and she read the book and was like, this is amazing. You need to keep writing it. So I had a couple moments like that where my friends were like, oh yeah, do this. The world needs this. And I was like, okay, you're right. And so I just took baby steps every day. I didn't really know what I was doing. And um, actually Maria is a author and a 
owner of a publishing company now. She's ridiculously ambitious, but um, so she was a huge resource. And, you know, I would just ask her dumb questions and then take the next step. And now the book is here and I'm super excited. Right. So let's break it down a little bit more. So you said, would you consider adoption as one of the main, like what not to say things? What are some of the other ones? Like one of my Uh, favorites was maybe you're just not doing it right. (laughs) Right. Oh my God. I know. Like maybe you're just not doing it right. Or are you putting your legs in the air after sex or wedge pillows under your butt after you have, it's like, Oh, we did all that. We did. I mean, the number of times I would like turn around, put my legs up the wall. I'm like, I know this is really sexy, honey. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's crazy. Like we all have Google, like infertility patients are like, we've Googled it all. We've tried it all. We are taking every supplement. We're doing everything. Like we know about it all. So, I mean, people mean well, but it's really not helpful. Asking about adoption is a huge one. We all know it exists. We're not there yet. You know, it's, that's a tough one because it's kind of like somebody asking about your plan B when you are like, in the ring fighting so hard for plan A to work out. Mm -hmm. It's like someone saying, hey, I'm going to run a marathon. Mm -hmm. And then your friend saying, well, you think about just maybe running a 5K. It's like, yeah. Why why are we talking about a 5K? Like I want to run a marathon. You know, like why are you talking about my my big dream not working and thinking about a plan B? Yeah. I I have faith it's going to work out. Let's just talk about that. Also, what I've learned through talking to, you know, one of my best friends, Gail, who's on one of the earlier episodes, had a successful adoption. But then I talked to some other people who had heartbreak because adoption isn't necessarily totally foolproof proof either. There's sometimes it, it doesn't work out or it falls through or, you know, so and it's very expensive. So not everybody has the financial means. So, you know, it's not it's just one of those things where it's not like, you know, people are like, oh, there's tons of kids in the world. Just find one. Like, it's not that easy. Right. So super complicated. Right. Another one that I love that you wrote about was watch my kids for one day and I promise you won't want any of your own. Oh my gosh. Uh, I know. People say I know. And I know where they're coming from. I mean, they're they're trying to be funny and yeah, they're trying to be cute. They're trying to like sympathize on some weird level. Same with like, you want one of my kids? I'm exhausted. It's like, yeah, I want to be exhausted like you. Like, don't, don't say it. And that's, you know, I wrote this book because people just don't know. And it's hard. You can't go through this journey and then every step of the way, be pulling family members and friends aside and being like, you know what, that's insensitive. Or you know what, that actually hurts my feelings. Like we don't have time on top of everything else to be educating our friends and family about like shitty comments they're unknowingly making. So I really wrote this so you could literally be like, hey mom, I'm starting the IVF process and here you go. Like mm-hmm. read this and you'll be good. I like how- I've highlighted certain parts of the book and dog-eared a couple <laughs> yeah. of the pages for you. Right. Right. Um, another one that you wrote that really resonated with me is, well, at least you have one child. And nobody ever said that to me specifically, I don't think, but you know, it's it addresses the whole thing of secondary infertility, which you're going through now, obviously, as well. But I love that you wrote having a child doesn't take away the pain of being unable to have more. And then couples experiencing secondary infertility are grateful for what they have and also sad over what they don't have at the same time. And that's okay. 
Right. So that's right. so true. You know, it's like, it doesn't mean that you're being greedy or that you're not happy with what you have. Like, I totally get that. So I'm so glad that you put that out there into the world too. Yes. Thank you. And it it is tricky because so many people are fighting for one child. And so I try to be really sensitive to, to that. Um, but it's true. Secondary infertility, because of that, I think is a little more behind the scenes yeah. because it is this fine line between just not knowing what's appropriate. It's just a different kind of situation and it just stings differently. Like yeah. my son may never have a sibling and that sucks for me. I wish he would. But then again, you know, you're always like, well, maybe his journey, he's not supposed to, you know, it's just riddled with so much like mm-hmm. trying to accept it, but then also trying to fight for what you really want. Yes. And yes, it's tough. exactly, exactly, exactly. So let's flip over to the good stuff. What are some of the things that are helpful for people to say? I think a big one is tell me everything you want me to know about how it's going. Mm -hmm. Just uh, many times I would get together with friends. I'd be in the midst of a IVF cycle and it was like the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. I wish they would just say like, holy shit, how's it going? You know, tell me everything you want me to know Mm -hmm. instead of like acting like it, it wasn't happening. Because when you're in the midst of a cycle, at least for me, I wanted to talk about it. It was the center of my life. Like at 7 p.m. that night, I was taking another shot. And at six in the morning, I was the next day, I was waking up and driving to my doctor's office and hoping my follicles were doing well. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's like my number one thing happening in my life. So I think acknowledging it, don't be silent, even though it can be awkward, but I just think it's important to talk about it. Another big one, people want to do something. I think like giving little gifts are huge. A fun one I always suggest is give the gift of like a cute pair of socks because you know infertility patients spend a ton of time at the doctor's office wearing nothing but a really cool sheet and their socks. And so being that cool paper hat you get to the little cap, right? shower cap thing. Yeah. And you're always looking really good in there. But being able to look down and see like pineapple socks or funny socks, a little gift from a friend, you're like, oh, you know, you feel supported and or uh, jewelry with like positive words or like yep. mantra bracelets, I think can be nice. And even just texting your friend on the day, like taking note of big procedure days. Like if your friend is having an egg retrieval, write that on your calendar, what day that's happening, and then send them a text in the morning to let them know you're thinking of them. Like it doesn't need to be monetary, but just even like, I know this is happening today goes a super long way. Right. Or even like, how are you? I know today's a big day. Don't even feel obligated to text me back. I just want you to know I love you. You know, just like a little something. Right. Don't put it on you. Like, it's not like, oh my gosh, tell me everything. It's exactly what you just said. It's I'm thinking of you when you're ready to talk. I'm ready to listen kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And with that, I wanted to say, I might be alone in this, but I don't think I am. Another big one that the infertility community gets is from friends and family saying, I can't even imagine what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I really don't like that. Like it feels so isolating. Like 
I can't even imagine like you're, you know, you're taking shots every night and you're doing this and that and like, oh my God, like my brain can't even wrap my head around what you're going through. So I'm just going to stay over here in my happy world with my three kids and not even imagine your life right now. You know what I mean? It just, it, makes, it just makes you feel so much more isolated. Like, and it, you're like, if you can't imagine it, then ask me and I'll tell you everything you want to know. It's, like, it is. It just, I, it's just it almost a really a barrier, mind. right? Like I can't even imagine like, so don't I can't even. even imagine. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to yeah. sit over here and just be like, whoa, what yeah. you've got going on over there. Oh my God. It's just like, it's not, it feels kind of supportive in a weird way. Like you're trying to empathize, but you're not really, or like, oh my God, you have to take shots. Oh, I could never. Oh, I hate that. I hate shots. Like, we all hate shots. You know what I mean? So it's just like subtle things like that. And I say in my book, like, you are never going to get this right. Like person who's not infertile, like the amount of hormones and ups and downs that we're experiencing, like nine times out of 10, what you're going to say is going to land in a super wrong way on us. You're not going to mean it at all, but like, it's really hard to get it right. Like I've taken things so personally, like one time my mom said, if you have a baby. And I was like, mom, it's not if it's when like every down to the word, we're like little, we're getting nicked with these little things. So it's really hard to get it right. Quote unquote. But like, that's why I wrote this book because there are little things you can do. There are nuances there are things you can avoid saying that will really help your person feel legitimately supported. Right. And even if you get it wrong, you're still trying and we get that. Like the whole thing is, even if someone offended me super badly by saying, I can't even imagine, like I know they're trying, I know they're coming from a good place. So at the end of the day, I'm not like pissed about it, but I just want to raise awareness that there's a better way to do it. Yeah. One of the other things you said that kind of made me chuckle was it's, it's probably best to steer clear of alcohol or coffee gifts because <laughs> so, many women avoid these things when undergoing treatment. And I was like, yes, right. you don't want to give her like a bottle of fireball, <laughs> right? even though right. that might sound amazing on a certain night. But right. And that's another thing, too, is the at least comments like, oh, you got a negative pregnancy test. Well, at least we can have drinks tonight. Right. Like, no, you know, don't leave a bottle of wine on their doorstep and be like, here, at least you can slam this tonight. Like there are no, there are no justs in infertility and there are no at least. Exactly. But another thing I will say, like if you're going to leave something on the doorstep, which I think is a good move, like, like I said, I kind of tend to keep things inside. So I'm not really one to want to spill my guts and shoot the shit with everybody in the face of like bad news or something sad. So Maria, again, friend of the year, she was really good at leaving things on my doorstep and then texting me, go check your doorstep. And I think that there's really something to that, like giving your person space to maybe they don't want to have to put on a show and be like, oh, thank you. But being like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. My friend just left this on my doorstep and I can go to the door tear stained and not have to feel bad or like, oh, my friend's here. I need to put on makeup and look good. You know, like just giving your person space, but yeah. offering support is, is huge. So I have Maria, that in my book Best now. friend ever. I know. I need to meet she Maria. <laughs> um, no, that's a great point. Cause sometimes you don't want to talk to people too, you know? So it's like, 
they they reached out, they made the connection, and then you can like go back to binge watching what like Game of Thrones or whatever you're doing. Absolutely. So tell me a couple more things towards the end of the book. You talk about when it doesn't work, kind of what to say, and then when it does work. So let, can you talk me through a little bit of that? Yes. So when it doesn't work, it's a really tough time. It's really tricky to know what to say. And I think this is the time where dropping off a bottle of wine is fine. Like skip the part about, you know, hey, you can drink this now, but just I'm thinking of you. Give your person space, like let them know you're there, but it's it's a really tough time. So it's hard to know. And you just need to take cues from your person. Um, you could send them a card, send them a text thinking of you, um, I'm here for you, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. There's no sil- silver lining. So don't jump to like, well, you can go on vacation now and and drink or you can do this or, hey, you can go back to drinking coffee now. Like, don't right. go there. Right. Like, just keep it like a sacred space and tread lightly. Yeah. And then when it, when it works, I mean, I talk about it in my book. It's, you know, from my personal perspective with don't be surprised if, if your person says it works and they're not shouting from the mountaintops or they're asking you like, don't talk about it on Facebook. Don't spread the word at all totally. because you need, you don't know what your person has been through. Um, you don't know where they're at. Like everybody has different milestones where they kind of say, okay, this is really happening. So just send them a card for, you know, I think that's always a nice gesture, like go buy stamps and send an actual card and celebrate it, like be excited, but take their lead, take, like let them lead the way if they're ready to have a party and announce it to the world. Awesome. Like be there and be excited, but don't be surprised if maybe they need a little time. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Meg, for sharing all of this and um, tell people where they can find your book and I'll link to it and post it and all that stuff too. Thank you. So yeah, The Waiting Line can be found on Amazon and also the website, thewaitinglinebook.com. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today and please keep in touch and keep me posted with what's going on with you. I will. Thank you. All right. Hey again, guys. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Meg. Her book is available at Amazon and I will link to it as well. I just want to also say that if you haven't already, so that so many more people can hear these stories, if you guys could go to the podcast page, rate and review, and also share this with anybody who might benefit from listening to it. We want as many people to hear these stories as possible. So thank you for helping me get the word out and I will talk to you guys next time.